0: And welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Dr Kate McCauley from the Department of Applied Science to talk about the development of a gel that can remove micropollutants from drinking water and potentially save pharmaceutical organisations money. Kate, thank you very much for speaking with me today.
1: No, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: We'll start with by looking at the issue of micropollutants in our water. How big a problem is it?
1: It's massive. And I think that... the range of pollutants that you can get it's like pretty much anything could potentially be a pollutant so it doesn't just come from one source they come from house like your household if you actually just think about how much waste that you generate it's not even just like what you bin. it's for example if you put your dishwasher on if you put your washing machine on Mm -hmm. all that water that's going into like the sewage system it's going to be carrying pollutants away yeah. from, like you know, what's on your clothes, like the dishwasher tablets, etc. Um, dishwasher tablets, for example, have got plastics a lot of the time wrapped around them, which take microplastics into the environment. So it's really just the scope which makes it such a, a huge issue.
0: So, what are some of the problems then about having these micro pollutants in the water? What are the negative effects of that?
1: So, a lot of the time, for example, again, like the the range. Of issues is really far-reaching. It could be, for example, things being toxic to like fish in the environment. That That's a big one. Like, for example, fish, they can eat something that's polluted and then in turn they get caught and then we eat the fish. So we're essentially digesting what they've eaten. Um, so it's just a cycle. It doesn't just like affect like one specific point of the environment. It basically, it's like a cycle that affects all of us. Farmland um, being polluted, for example, by say heavy metals, if the farmer doesn't know that that is polluted, and that could have come from, for example, it was really heavy rain one day and a river bust its bank and kind of flooded part of the farmer's land, that could have traveled, like the pollutants could have traveled from that um, into the soil. The farmer then grows food, we then eat the food, and again, it's a cycle.
0: Are there any specific examples around the Glasgow area where we can see pollutants in our water?
1: Um, yeah, so I'll, if, if you enjoy like walking in the countryside, and I'm sure a lot of us have been doing a lot of walking <laughs> over the, the past few years, if you sometimes, like, there's certain parts, especially around Mogai, if you look just, like, at a stream, like, say you're out doing a nice walk, and if you look at a stream of water, have you ever seen it's, like, almost iron brew orange at the yeah. side? It, that's all, like, iron contamination so that's tiny little rods of iron that basically has come from when glasgow used to be like very industrial mm-hmm. so all that like it's honestly like iron brew orange that that's iron pollution in the environment which you probably people see it every day but they just don't really know what it is because i mean why would you but that's for example come from industrialized glasgow when it was um really heavy in the industrial side and that's from like years ago and it's just all leached and accumulated in the water supply
0: So what existing techniques do we have in place to clean water?
1: Again, lots of different ones. Uh, There is electrolysis. A a big thing is like filters and membranes where you basically try and pass the water through some sort of filter and it traps the pollutants, the bacteria, things like that. Um, But again, filters need to be replaced eventually. So like water treatment plants, that's that's a big issue where it's like parts need replaced essentially.
0: So talk to me about this gel you're looking to develop. How is that going to remove pollutants from water?
1: Kind of The idea is that we've shown previously that if you stick an electrode into a solution, for example, if you vary various conditions and put in the right molecule, you can actually grow a gel around an electrode by changing, for example, the voltage, the current, that sort of thing. But these gels, they're over 99% water, even though like hair gel, for example, if you touch it, it's a gel, like it's obviously not water. Like it's, you can touch it, you can manipulate it, a jelly baby, for example, it's got a structure, even though it's a gel. So that's kind of the same with these things. So they are actually like 99% water, but because they do have a fiber structure in them that you create with electricity, that allows like hypothetically like pollutants in water to like enter in okay. and out of them so the idea is it would almost get used as like a sponge okay and you could allow the pollutants to travel in and out of it and then hopefully once the idea is developed a bit more by changing the structure of the gel and you can do that again by like changing the molecule you make it with mm-hmm. just like tweak a wee bit of it that then you could probably hopefully target what pollutants go in and out of it by let's like, say changing like the size of the pores in it that sort of okay. thing so you could have something bigger going in or something smaller going in
0: that's brilliant that's a very clear explanation for someone that's not very scientifically minded uh, like myself kate thank you where did the idea come from
1: That's a good question and <laughs> um, so i think my kind of background is quite varied what i've done so i'm like a chemist and i kind of just class myself as like a material chemist but I didn't really stick to like one area so like my PhD that was in metal chemistry and then my postdoc was in gel chemistry so actually these areas are completely different they come under the kind of umbrella term of chemistry but from a materials point of view they're like hugely hugely different. And then when I came to GCU, obviously, they've got such a focus on, like, the common good and, like, water, purifying water and stuff like that is, like, such a major part of their core values. I kind of thought that, well, I would try and combine the, the metals kind of background for my PhD with the gel idea and mm-hmm. then apply that to treat water.
0: Tell me about the gel then. What's the difference between this gel that you're going to use and, say, the, the kind of the wet look gel that I've got from Asda in my hair? <laughs> oh it's great (laughs) (laughs) thank you
1: so there's kind of two different types of gels that that you can kind of get so for example the the gel that you'd have in your hair and for most gels that people would recognize as a gel in the actual molecules that make up the structure they're actually chemically linked together so if if you think of like the differences say you've got conga line of people right and each of those people is a molecule but they're like all holding on to each other. Mm-hmm. So that would be like your hair gel or like a jelly baby, for example. Okay. There's all, They're all holding together. So that's like a conga line of people. But then the gels that I make is more like if the people in the conga line were in a straight line, but then stopped holding on to each other.
0: Line dancing.
1: Yeah, like line dancing. Yeah. <laughs> so basically you're still in a line, but you're not physically touching anybody else. Okay. So it's just to the naked eye, they look the same.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and for all intents and purposes would feel the same but structurally if you go down to like a really tiny tiny like form the the molecules are behaving differently and it's because they're not physically touching each other like in line dancing that allows me to control what can go in and out of them because there's a lot more free space
0: and that's incredible that these react differently when electricity's passed through them
1: yeah so it's it's kind of a long way to get to a shortcut. Uh, The idea is that you have a different chemical in the solution. So you have to add in a different chemical. So this is a type of chemical that depending on if you run electricity through or don't, it essentially reacts one way. It's got kind of two forms. It's either with electricity or without electricity through it. And again, chemically, they behave differently. But essentially what's happening is... If you turn the electricity on, because this molecule changes around your electrode, so around the surface of the electrode that you've stuck in, Mm -hmm. the pH falls, it drops. So it becomes more alkaline. And then it's because it's like a change in pH, that's what triggers the gel to start forming because it doesn't like being at a low pH.
0: As we mentioned at the top of the show, this could potentially save pharmaceutical organizations money. How could it do that?
1: Obviously, it would be further down the line once we've got it working. Of course. But I think the idea for that would be it's kind of like twofold so that you could hopefully purify the water. So that would be that you put the electrode in and the pollutants get sucked into the gel. So therefore, the water is cleaner. But then the second part of it would also be that you can take the electrode out. And they're quite like you know, like with hair gel, like you can touch it. Mm-hmm. Like It's kind of fragile, but you can actually touch it. Um, you can actually remove the gel from the electrode and hopefully the pollutants that are, will be trapped in the gel. And kind of like I mentioned, that it's all to do with like pH. So the gels would have quite a low pH. So then if you just threw some acid on it, like, know, like vinegar or something like that, it essentially would change the pH and the gel would fall apart and just go back to like a liquid. But then that would have been a kind of more concentrated version of the pollutants are stuck in it. So then that could go on and get treated and possibly they could be recycled in some way.
0: So then what are the benefits from recycling pharmaceuticals?
1: Again, 2 twofold. again. Uh, money is the big one and that's what the, obviously the companies are interested in. Um, so if you could recycle something, it means you don't have to make it from scratch. However, that again could possibly, you'd have to put more capital into it to start with to make a re, like a recycling process. But again, environmentally, it's better to recycle something than to make something completely new. And it's the exact same when it comes to chemicals. Um, you can actually see in the shops just now, like a lot of them are having like recycled lines, you know, like H and M, COS, that sort of thing, where it's like recycled cashmere, it's recycled cotton. Um, and again, it's all like for the environment. And the same kind of would apply to like the pharmaceuticals. Like if you could get part of that molecule back, they don't need to make it again.
0: This study has been funded by the Royal Society of Chemistry. How much money have they put towards this? £9,000. And how will that £9,000 be spent?
1: Uh, I think a lot of it is going to be just like little bits of equipment. PH probe, that's a big one. And again, because it's a gel, I need like a specialist PH probe. So get a couple of them in. Just really the chemicals, the consumables, that sort of thing. Little bits of equipment.
0: This study is going to last for one year. Can you outline what those 12 months are going to look like?
1: I think it'll all depend when I can get back in the lab (laughs) hopefully starting to um probably May because that'll be when like the the students will be because we've got the fourth year students in doing the research projects just now obviously in a normal year I'd be in the lab simultaneously working on it but obviously because of COVID it's um not as simple as that these days but um hopefully I'm thinking May should hopefully be when I can get in and properly start looking at it because uh it'll free up the kind of floor availability because the students will have finished up by then.
0: It sounds like this project, particularly exploring the rivers around Glasgow, this really sounds like it'll lead to collaboration with other areas of the university. Is that something you might be looking to explore during the study?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Like Collaboration is one of the best bits, I think, about working in science. It's that you don't need to know everything. You can just go with people that know a lot more <laughs> than you and then learn from them and get a good bit of work going. Um, yeah, definitely. So the, the department I currently work in, um, they've got a really great background in like water treatment, purifying water, and then obviously other people in the department. I'm part of like the water research group, which is an actual combination of social scientists who look at policies in like, developing countries, engineers, chemists, biologists, And that's actually just at GCU, and then that's not to mention the other people that I've had the pleasure of working with over the years that are quite up for collaborating in this study as well. So hopefully once it gets up and running, it should be pretty collaborative.
0: What's the best outcome from this study?
1: Obviously that it works. Uh, No, so the best outcome, well that obviously is the best outcome, Um, what I'd love is uh, to get some pilot data essentially to show that it's a really good solid promising idea which would then allow me to approach one of the bigger funders and to go for like a kind of higher value funding which would probably allow me to get like a postdoc or a PhD student to then continue it which would again get like more money for the department, more equipment which would open up more opportunities for student projects and then if I had a PhD student working on it that that would be amazing that would hopefully be the the goal of it.
0: You think these results could be put to practical use you think industry can use it to clean water?
1: Yeah definitely again this is like this would be really far down the line This this will not be in the foreseeable future and that is again just because it's such a a new novel idea like Mm -hmm. anything kind of in science you've got to start the bench and then work it up pass it to the chemical engineers they work out how to actually make it work in the real world um, so yeah but no it, do, it does have the potential that if it did work it could be used especially because um it would be portable for example and then you can reuse the electrodes you could then use the gel again so yeah no it does have potential but that would be very far down the line
0: you Mentioned it being portable there, Kate. Do you think it could be used in places where clean drinking water is limited?
1: Yeah, definitely. That that's one of the, the big things is because it's literally you need a power source and an electrode and something to control your power. That that's kind of all you need in a couple of chemicals, which can then be recycled. So yeah, it does have the the opportunity if obviously you need a electrical source, which in a lot of places that do have drinking water problems, they don't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you could take like a portable generator, that sort of thing. And yeah, it potentially would have the the scope to be able to like do that.
0: Excellent. Well, look Further for- down
1: the line. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that sounds really interesting, Kate, and I look forward to catching up with you at some point next year to find out what stage the project's at. But I know you're really passionate about STEM subjects and encouraging girls and young women to explore these areas at school. You've touched on it earlier, but could you talk a bit about your own background and how you got to where you are today?
1: Kind of just started off like in in high school, actually, even like younger than that, like when I was a kid, like I kind of just always liked knowing how things worked. Like, and at the time when you're a kid, you don't really know like what that means. I was just nosy about things. Like I liked sport and I liked how stuff worked. And then that kind of led into, for example, if, like the triple jump, like what angle did, if I took off at, would I go? further if I jumped a certain way could I get higher in the high jump um which at the time I just thought I wanted to be better at sports as well but it actually all turned out it was kind of physics that I found out about when I went to university later and I was like oh, like that's what it was so I think there was always like an interest there from like when I was a kid I was always like interested in like why things worked um like why could I see myself in a mirror like just basic kind of everyday stuff it must have been really annoying for my parents who are not science (laughs) in the slightest yeah and then when I went to high school they were just it was kind of just like science and math subject that I was just naturally a bit better at and so that way you generally like what you're better at (laughs) so yeah I was not very good at English um didn't really like that yeah and then it kind of just came I liked kind of science and maths and I didn't really have a clear idea what I wanted to do so I applied for I think it was like chemistry, physics, maths, accountancy, and a couple of like engineering things. And then the first offer I got back was from for chemistry at Glasgow University. And to be honest, I just thought I was like, oh, that means I can fail every exam this entire year and still go to university. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. Let's arrange a school prom. Uh, yeah, not going to lie. That's how it happens.
0: That sounds like quite a straightforward path. Are there any barriers in your way to stop you from achieving that?
1: I don't know about barriers, but it's, I think like anything, if you want to achieve something, it's never easy, no matter what the field it is. My chemistry teacher, obviously, didn't help. She, um, when I was in school, told me that I'd never amount to anything in the field of chemistry, and I was pretty much rubbish at everything. So, yeah, that that was one of them. Kind of ironic now. Yeah, so I think it was like, especially like, so when I started university, um, I did chemistry, physics and maths. And especially in physics, the kind of male-female split was, it was pretty much all males. And then like me and maybe a couple, a handful of girls, which, uh, yeah, you you could see actually attitudes coming out in lab environments. People wanting to dominate conversations, discussions. That was very obvious, which is a kind of common theme.
0: Why is that available in it, physics to, compared to like biology or chemistry?
1: To be honest, um, I'm not entirely sure. I think t- traditionally physics is seen as the, I hate saying it, but this is like traditionally, I don't feel it like this, but traditionally physics is seen as being male. Biology has been associated with females and chemistry has been the one that's like in the middle. This of course is rubbish. But in reality, if you look at the gender split and the numbers, this that that is what happens. And again, like, especially because like, I went into chemistry. So I did my PhD in catalysis. But then catalysis is quite, it's like an old kind of traditional area of chemistry. And I've been to conferences where genuinely there's been more men called Dave or David than there's been females in the room.
0: What do you think needs to change to get a, a better balance and get more, I'm not just into physics, but you mentioned conferences there when there's there's more guys called, called Dave. What needs to change to stop that from happening?
1: You can see a shift happening. So it's, I started my PhD in 2013, and even from then, you can see that there is a sh- slight shift. And there are a lot more of incentives and it's like, you know, encouraging like women in STEM subjects. So you, you, you can see a shift. But I think that the kind of ideas that are ingrained in it, for example, if one of the ideas that's the unwritten rule is that if you want to be an academic, you need to continuously move universities to get. Say you can't do a PhD where you did your undergrad. You can't postdoc where you did your PhD. You then have to move and do like another postdoc. So actually, generally, one of the, the these barriers is that women don't really have that many options, as many options to do that as males do, because a lot of the titling, like traditionally, it would be the the woman that stays at home with the children. So if you've got young children, for example, you don't want to have to move every year and unsettle them. And that is one of the, one of the issues. And actually I've been part of a a group called VisNet, which has been, it was an EPSRC funded project. And it was looking at the gender imbalance at higher roles in academia. So undergrad, it's ish, 50-50. PhD, there's, it's slightly swung towards males, but then in higher academic roles, the this split is huge, it's pretty much very male male dominated. And it was addressing it why that happens. And one of the biggest barriers they thought it was basically travel and collaborations. So a lot of things for grant applications, it's like you need to show that you have international collaborations, you've gone to international conferences. Mm -hmm. But again, if you have young children at home, and you're looking after them, you can't drop everything. And go to a conference you know halfway around the world and then go to another one or go yeah. work to, like you you just physically can't do it and that is seen as being one of the major barriers Yeah. but actually now with the, the covid situation the fact that all these conferences have now gone online and it's so like now you don't need to be in the same room as somebody mm-hmm. i think that actually will help change because attitudes have had to change like you don't need to be in the room with someone mm-hmm. to make a really good contribution. Like, it can be done online,
0: mm-hmm. whereas
1: before that was kind of frowned at. So I think actually as well that might spark a little change. Mm-hmm. For example, um, I was just reading an article like, in the Royal Society of Chemistry um, magazine and it was all about like the gender imbalance and then it was basically people commenting that, yeah, it's all good to say that you want to do something about it, but for example, in a budget, write in childcare is an option that you can claim back. Like, you could put your child in a nursery for, say, like, a day, half a day, so you could write a grant application. It's it's all these sort of things. It's like little little changes are happening. So hopefully it'll get better.
0: What would you say to anyone listening? I can't imagine there would be any uh, school children listening to this, but if there are any, any schoolgirls with ages 12 or 13 that are interested in pursuing a career in STEM, would you have any advice for them?
1: I think the biggest bit of advice is if you find something that you love do it and if somebody tells that you can't do it just ignore it because you see when you get to achieve it and you think about all those people that told you you couldn't do it it feels great so just go for it
0: (laughs) yeah that was absolutely brilliant thank you very much for speaking to me today
1: you're very welcome
0: thanks for having me delighted and I'd also like to thank everyone who has listened to this episode and I hope you can join us again soon when we will be talking with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University in the meantime you can subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from until then I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast